You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Got Slack? Got Macs? Get Collide. Device security that fixes challenging problems by messaging your users on Slack. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 445. Prime Factors. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore an episode of Star Trek for the potential trade value of that story, examining it for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing if it withstands the test of time. This week, Prime Factors, the one where Captain Janeway and the crew of Voyager experience the Delta Quadrant's idea of sands, as it redefines the old adage, if it's too good to be true, then Tuvok will decide that for you. We'll get back to Prime Factors in a moment, right after Norman tells all of you how you can stay in touch with all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with the trivia that he knows will bring you pleasure. Well, I certainly hope it will. Trivia for Prime Factors. We have a story by David R. George III and Eric Stilwell. Now, Eric's name should be familiar. He, of course, has a story credit for the very well-regarded TNG episode, Yesterday's Enterprise. He also served many production roles going back to TNG's earliest days, starting out as a lowly PA and working his way up. David is best known as a Star Trek novelist, as well as a contributor to Star Trek magazine and other sci-fi publications. He and Eric had this idea for a run-in the Voyager would have with a tie-in to a TOS favorite, that being Gary Seven. Well, not Gary himself, but the alien species that had some cool technology, like a transporter-type device that could get him and presumably others to travel vast distances. They made the pitch, and many of those elements that they had made it into the final script, but obviously that very specific tie-in was lost along the way. The final teleplay credit goes to Michael Paracone and Greg Elliott. As writers, they are most often credited together. A few of their other credits include shows like Savannah and Charmed. On his own, though, Michael has a very robust career in audio engineering and as a sound supervisor for a number of projects, large and small. They have just two total Star Trek credits together as writers, this one and an upcoming fourth season episode of Voyager. 
This was directed by Les Landau. Not surprising to see Les here after his long run as a director on TNG and DS9. We most recently covered his work on Voyager with Time and Again. Time for our cast spotlight and, well, wrapping up our main cast spotlight with Garrett Wong as Ensign Harry Kim. Garrett was born in Riverside, California, but spent his earliest years in Bermuda. A move to Tennessee followed, and finally he found himself back in California to attend UCLA, where he was encouraged to pursue acting. A handful of early TV and commercial work landed him almost immediately in front of casting for Voyager, and he found himself a series regular nearly at the beginning of his career. After Voyager, Garrett has bounced around from video games and TV and feature appearances, but it should be no surprise to listeners of this show that Garrett is indeed a Star Trek and sci-fi fan and has made himself a fixture in those worlds. He leads the Star Trek programming track at Dragon Con in Atlanta. He's a fixture at other conventions and track events, and you can easily find him and his takes on Voyager with co-star Robert Duncan McNeil on the Delta Flyers podcast. Now let's look at our guest cast on Voyager. Welcome back to Martha Hackett as Seska and Josh Clark as Lieutenant Carey. And then on Sicaris, let's meet a few of the locals. Jarrett Otell is played by Andrew Hill Newman, and while that may not be a household name like some other actors, Andrew has had a thriving career in entertainment since the 80s. In addition to numerous TV and film credits, everything from Mannequin to Night Court to Desperate Housewives, you can find Andrew's name in credits for many shows as both a producer and writer. He has scribed many shows on Nickelodeon, co-created the Celebrity Poker Showdown, and even contributed material to Saturday Night Live. On top of all that, Andrew has had a performing career on stage in Broadway productions of Little Shop of Horrors, Merlin, and Big River, to name a few. Now, Harry Kim is smitten by Yudana, played by Yvonne Suhor. She's from New Orleans, and like Andrew, who we just mentioned, had a career on stage in addition to TV and film roles. In the early 90s, she was a regular on ABC's The Young Riders about the Pony Express and had standout guest roles on shows like Northern Exposure and Brooklyn Bridge. Sadly, we lost Yvonne at the age of 56 in 2018. Finally, Gatherell is played by Belgian-born Ronald Gutman, another actor with a long career on both stage and screen. Ronald got his start on TV in the mid-70s. As that work took him from Europe to Hollywood, he had a memorable role in the 1989 film The Hunt for Red October as the unflappable engineer Lieutenant Melikan. He has continued almost nonstop in TV and film, everything from comedy to soap operas, and most recently a recurring role in the Forrest Whitaker-led epics series, Godfather of Harlem. Sit right back and you will hear a tale. A lot of tales if you're lucky, and maybe they'll bring you pleasure. Let's start with this one. Prologue. Mealtime in the mess hall. 
Harry Kim is taking a ribbing from the next table over, where Seska and Balana are prying into his love life, or lack thereof, with one of the Delaney sisters. Seems a romantic gondola ride on the holodeck ended up with Harry in the drink. Captain Janeway looks on to the merriment, pleased that her crew are getting along personally. Tuvok can only muster that he thinks the camaraderie will improve efficiency. But their conversation is interrupted by a call from the bridge that they've picked up a distress call. And a weird one it is. It's not the alien ship that's in distress, but rather its captain states that Voyager is in distress. Act 1. This is the welcome wagon from the planet Sicaris. It's a man named Gatherell Laban, and he invites himself onto Voyager for hors d'oeuvres. Yes, the people of Sicaris are well known for their extreme hospitality, and he's there to invite the crew over for some R&R. Neelix is excited about exotic plants. Janeway is excited about a break for her crew. It's all good. Even Tuvok likes the idea since a relaxed crew is an efficient crew, right? Some of the officers start checking out this incredibly hospitable planet full of pleasant people and modern but bland and forgettable architecture. Harry Kim meets a young woman who is operating a weather sensor, and she definitely takes an interest in him with his unbounded nerdiness. Janeway finds herself in full-on Dr. Crusher at Farpoint Station mode, going ham on some bolts of fabric. Gatherell, wait, he's just Gath now, offers anything she wants. They can make clothes out of all of this cloth for free because she's a guest, and his people are just like that. Janeway is delighted but professional, ready to authorize shore leave for her entire crew. Gath is pleased to know that they'll all soon be able to visit, and he also seems a bit personally interested in Janeway's experience on Sicaris. Act 2. More of the crew have beamed down to Sicaris. Harry Kim, in a way more relaxed, romantic mood, has found his way back to the woman he met before, Yudana. She's wrapped with the story he tells about how Voyager found itself in the Delta Quadrant, and she even asks permission to share it with others. Stories have value. They affect lives, and she wants to hear more. But this time, in a more private place. Yudana takes Harry to a kind of transporter pad. They materialize just before sunrise in the woods of Alastria, a place with warm, ahem, passion winds that induce a kind of euphoria. The feeling overwhelms them both, and Harry wants to know more clearly where they are. This place has two suns, where Sakaris only has one. She explains that Alastria is far away about 40,000 light-years from Sicaris. Romance Harry gives way again to Nerd Harry, and he insists that he needs to know everything there is to know about that transporter platform that got them there. Janeway is still being wooed by Gath when Harry comes barging in with the news that the Sicaris trajector matrix pad folds space, allowing for travel over vast distances, Alastria being pretty much at the extent of it. Naturally, Janeway asks for help. Could they possibly use this technology to get closer to home? Gath is resolute, though. Sharing technology with outsiders is forbidden. He would break one of the most important of their canon of laws, and there are no exceptions. Act 3. 
time for a big senior staff meeting back on Voyager. There's a lot of talk about how the device could save them time getting home, but Tuvok knows it's all just wishful thinking. Janeway puts it into perspective. Asking the Sakarians to violate their law is like an alien culture asking Starfleet to break the Prime Directive. That's tough to hear when the shoe is on the other hand now, isn't it? Maybe the no is a prelude to negotiation, though. Harry's experience with Udana prompts him to propose that stories could be a good bargaining tool. The ship's computer is full of stories, literature from dozens of cultures. It could be a bargaining chip, and Janeway wants to meet with Gath to do this above board. Balana offhandedly remarks that she'll poke around the trajector matrix in the meantime, but the captain says absolutely not. If they're going to do this at all, they will do it above board. Janeway meets with Gath on board Voyager over some pecan pie. If that and her promise of destroying the technology once they use it aren't enough to persuade Gath, then maybe one more thing will. She offers the entirety of their library of literature, centuries worth of stories. That's intriguing, and Gath says he'll bring it up to the other magistrates after finishing his pie. Down in engineering, Seska's mind is wandering. She's thinking about the very possibility of getting home with the use of that trajector matrix. It would allow her to get back to see her brother in time for his birthday, a promise she wants to keep. Bolana, determined, goes back to a computer with an idea. The folding of space near Sicaris must leave a subspace residue they can detect. It might allow them to figure out how it works. They detect a heavy neutrino dispersion pattern, and it leads Lieutenant, oh hey, look, it's Lieutenant Nosebreak, also known as Lieutenant Carey, to chime in. He's interested in what interests them. He's thinking of a neutrino bubble big enough to surround the ship, something Seska thinks their modified deflector could do. It's all, um, in theory, of course, since they don't exactly have authorization to explore this particular path. Also unauthorized is Harry Kim, following Udana to meet with a mysterious Sakaran, Jarrett, who is totally not authorized himself to try to cut a deal for all that tasty literature for a crack at their trajector matrix. He's a bend-the-rules kind of guy. And you know, if he also happens to be the hero who brings all this new literature to his people, well, nothing wrong with that. Sensing a moral dilemma... Harry gets back to Voyager and confides in Tom Paris and, oh, uh, Bellana and Seska, okay. Former inmate Paris is the one who reminds them all that this deal is not above board and tells Harry he needs to report all of this to the captain. When they leave, it's Seska who turns to Bellana and says it's up to them now to skirt the rules and get the ship home. Act 4. Jarrett imparted to Harry that Gath has no intention of helping them, which leaves Janeway with her own dilemma now. Try to get help from the guy who has an ulterior motive, Gath, or from the guy who is violating his planet's rules, Jarrett. In private, Tuvok says that the captain must determine Gath's offer, which she does by visiting him on the surface. Gath at first is reluctant, evasive even. Then he makes it clear that he just wants Janeway and the Voyager crew to stay on Sakaris because they're new and novel. Janeway sees his offer for what it is, this pleasure planet 
is about whatever stimuli can keep the Sakarans amused, and it's not about what their visitors really need. Hurt, angry, full of resolve, Janeway beams back to Voyager and cancels shore leave for everyone. They're leaving. It'll take time to get everyone back, though, and in that time, Bellana, Carrie, and Seska have downloaded the entire Federation literary database with plans to trade it to Jarrett. They run off to the transporter room, only to be interrupted by Chief of Security Tuvok, who just happens to be walking in to stop them, ask him to prepare the ship, and then beam down to Sakaris to make the exchange with Jarrett himself. Act 5. Moments later, Tuvok walks into engineering with the device and the order to not activate it until he talks to Captain Janeway, When he leaves, though, Seska attaches it to an interface to test it just to be ready. Janeway is ready to leave orbit, but Seska, Bellana, and Carrie discover that the trajector matrix only works by using the planet's huge crystalline mantle as a kind of amplifier. They can't leave if their scheme is to work, and so Bellana lies about an engine failure to keep them there for a while longer. Then the problem becomes real. As they activate the trajector, the field it opens up is growing super fast, only it's spitting out anti-neutrinos so fast that Voyager's deflector can't keep up. That causes the ship's plasma manifold to become unstable, which means potential warp core breach. It's bad, causing Bellana to evacuate engineering and do the only thing she can, destroy the trajector matrix to stop the whole process. Thus ends the emergency, thus ends the way home, this time. Seska says she'll start erasing sensor logs, but Bellana stops her. She won't let Seska hide their tracks. Rather, they'll own up to what they did. Time to face the music. Bellana explains what happened to Captain Janeway, but Tuvok steps up to admit his role in the whole affair, too. A quietly angry, profoundly disappointed Janeway admonishes Bellana for her actions, stating that she can't lose her contribution to the crew, but anything else like this and she won't be an officer any longer. Then it's Tuvok's turn. Janeway's disappointment and utter shock grows. He's her most trusted officer and her friend, and he used logic to justify the wrong course of action. In his defense... Tuvok says he did it to realize her goal, to get the crew home and spare the captain of the moral dilemma, to which Janeway can only ask him to bring his logic to her and not act on it behind her back. Dismissed, which is Starfleet for get out. The end. I have to admit something, John. Your recap gave me so much pleasure. (laughs) Well, as long as it didn't disappoint you, because the last thing that I want to do is, you know, earn the profound disappointment of you or our listeners, because that I, I would wear that shame for a long, long time. Next time, though, before you finish your recap, bring your recap to me. (laughs) Dismissed. Dismissed. (laughs) (laughs) And I do love you get points for referencing the dismissed equals Starfleet to forget. How how could you like nobody could ever forget that now. It's so, ah, man. That's a T-shirt. That's on a T-shirt. I tell you what, Janeway just impresses me more and more week after week. You know, 
So mm-hmm. cool. Okay, uh, let, let's start off with the moment in the teaser. Who is the unnamed crew woman in the background behind Kim and Paris? Because, all right, Kim and Paris are sitting at that table, and then you got Seska and Bolana, you know, a table or two over. And, and the cameras from their POV cutting over to Kim and Paris at that table. And there's this background crew woman there, blonde in a blue uniform. Now, mm-hmm. normally you don't have a background player really participating in a scene. You just have them mouthing. It's always, you know, an actor parlance, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. You're just mouthing words in the background. Not, But she's she's actively listening and then laughing mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, gauging their embarrassment. No lines, but it's just such a rarity, and she's so prominent in it. I thought that was very and no credit? No credit. In the trivia? No. At all? No, nothing. No. Nothing. just there yeah so here's something that i think is very true to life mm-hmm. and maybe it's still true to life in the 24th century mm-hmm. but harry being tight-lipped when seska and balana were trying to wring information mm-hmm. from him about his date exactly so did you hear that silence because that's what i would actually give you about a date that i was on. oh re- oh that's it really Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it. That's like, you know what? If I don't tell my parents first, that date didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> okay. And who's he going to tell? He doesn't have anyone to tell. Oh, that's very I, true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, are the Delaney sisters getting a bad rap too early? Uh, yes. I, I want no shaming of the Delaney sisters because uh, I mm-hmm. think they're awesome. And I think whatever the crew does in their spare time, good for them. They, they look, and, uh, you, got, you got 70 years to kill. Okay. And I love Tuvok. Whatever's good for the crew, because, you know, he's hip like that. He's concerned. I like that. This is, you know, I think this is a little foreshadowing. It's just that he will logic his way into anything. Like, hey, Tuvok, is this good for the crew or bad for the crew? You know, uh, yeah, logic says it's good. (laughs) You know? Fine. He has, like, the logic eight ball, right? It's either yes, no, logic your way out of it. Those are the three answers. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's it's a Mm -hmm. (laughs) three-sided response cube in the the eight ball. All right. Look, we we have to address it at some point. Might as well be now. The makeup and hair have to be addressed. Uh, No facial appliances. Basically, we're talking humans with some ersatz halo thing made out of pipe cleaners sticking out of their buns that's that's what we get out of the sakarans that yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a real kind of low budget way of putting like the the saint halo behind them yeah you know right. in those medieval paintings yes right right this way it looks yeah it's very very weird yeah um I'm glad that you brought up the way that, say, Tuvok's behavior is foreshadowing, mm-hmm. you know, certain events that are going to happen. Because I thought that when we first met Gath, it was kind of a throwaway line. But when he said, our people are very well traveled, mm. some of them had brought back stories about the ship of aliens from another part of the galaxy. Oh, right. That's foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, it's nice not that done. they yeah. just found Voyager, it's that they were actively seeking Voyager because these stories gave them pleasure. Very true. And they wanted to see where these stories came from so that they would be able to receive more pleasure from the actual people in the stories. That is a nice little bit. You have to think about a story editor, Jerry, Jerry Taylor or somebody like going through reading that draft, seeing how important stories are to the script and then saying, ooh, what if we plant that idea back at the front? That's very mm-hmm. cool. Nice little find. Very there. interesting. Yep. I'm glad that you also brought up the Beverly Crusher reference from Encounter at Farpoint uh-huh. because that entire opening 
in the Sakaran Plaza, it's almost shot exactly the way that we saw her, Beverly, in that scene. It is. Uh, all we're missing is, you know, charge it to my room. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. Now, in that scene, that's also where Harry first meets uh, Yudana. And I just, I, I love their whole thing. Like, ooh, can you show me how to operate this? Like, yes, literally wave your hand around <laughs> this thing. Like, that's it. Like, oh, it's so technical and complicated you know mm -hmm. uh but i do have to say it's nice to see our crew in civilian clothing so early you know we did have um planet candy corn a few episodes ago where they had those very <laughs> uh, uh very you know early sci-fi kind of buck rogers looking outfits but it's cool to see them with some uh you know even janeway she's got some casual clothes but with her uh, starfleet logo there yeah well, i'm just wondering how she got that civilian clothing on her mm -hmm. when Gath has her manhandled literally within nine minutes. I, he's he's very for and I get it, it's all part of the character. He's very right. forward, very you know, but I, I do I, I kind of wanted a line from Janeway to saying, Hey, uh, I have somebody back at home, seventy thousand light years away, and he's taking care of my dog. So back off, buddy. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or even like, you see these four pips on my collar? Yeah. That means I'm a captain in our world. And you know what that means? That means do not touch me. Yeah, uh, right. right. Or something like yeah, that. You know, very yeah, very Janeway yeah. snappiness. Yeah, you know? yeah there yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, I, oh, oh it, you know, of course, we're going to be talking about the prime directive here. Um, and, and I do appreciate, though, that there is a line where Chakotay says when they're in that meeting, says, I know of many times when Starfleet personnel have decided on strong ethical grounds to ignore it. I'm thinking, I really have to wonder what that class is like at the Academy. You know, how how many of these stories of Starfleet personnel ignoring the prime directive, how many of those are getting passed around? And how many students come away from it thinking like, wait, they violate this all the time. Why are we learning about this? And I also want to point out in that scene that I love the way that scene is shot with Janeway looking out the window and the camera is just craning down, and you have the staff behind her. You're listening to them debating in the background. It's just a great-looking shot. So cool. And it's not the first time that we see her look towards the stars mm -hmm. for some kind of guidance. I always like uh, that about her character. We did that in several episodes. We've made reference to that. And you actually referenced something in Eye of the Needle where... You said that Harry and Bellana were originally supposed to forge this relationship, which started in Caretaker. Yeah. And we saw another uh, moment like that at around 19 minutes when they were talking about breakfast and they were getting uh, Seska and uh, Bellana were ribbon Harry. Mm -hmm. And then later in this scene, right after uh, Janeway decides what to do. You know, Harry and Bellana, again, another poignant scene, yep. another how are you, you know, are you okay type of yeah. scene. Yeah, there's uh, there's an intimacy there. It isn't sexual or anything, but it's just this uh, personal intimacy. Like, you, you can see that there is a care there that, that mm -hmm. uh, I really like. I, I do have to say, I, I really appreciate that Voyager has just committed to and has dug in with coffee, that this is a thing, this is a hallmark thing for Voyager. And I'm glad to see in this episode, I hope that it comes back again. I, I haven't watched far enough ahead to really remember if it does or not. Pecan pie. I hope mm. that pecan pie comes back. Those things belong together, coffee and pecan pie. Very excited to see that here. 
So I was just wondering in that scene, mm-hmm. uh, do you know, yeah. because you're an expert in this field, do you know if that fork was actually supplied by Champion Catering? Well, it did. It resembled a space fork. So mm-hmm. I'm going to say that if it truly is a space fork, hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So we have space fork and space plate. We had space decanter for the coffee yeah. or space thermos. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, and I, I know it's a sore subject yeah. for, mm-hmm. for many of us, especially for you and yeah. I, um, especially since uh, the beginning of April. But are we going to have to extend our next edition podcast to episode 48? Because now we have – I think we have a little bit of a debate here between how do you pronounce pecan or pecan? Oh. Because there's a right way of saying it, and then there's pecan. Oh, oh, don't, don't. Hey, look, as somebody who, okay. who is a proud, uh, proud member of the Champion Nut Farm uh, from mm-hmm. Southwest Georgia, where we grew and still have to this day many, many acres of pecans. That's what we have. And I will say proudly that my grandmother and mother make a delicious pecan pie. Oh, Indeed. by the way, by the way, uh, and completely seriously, because that is a true story, <laughs> even if Dishon is not, um, right. uh, I shared it before, and I have to share it here to commit it to the record that is Mission Log. Uh, my grandmother did make a great pecan pie from our champion nut farm. That's what we called it, uh, champion pecans. Um, my mom made the same exact recipe, but they were always different. And we, you know, we never told my grandmother why they tasted different, even though they were the same recipe. The difference is my mom put Maker's Mark in it, so that's hey. that's how that pecan pie gets made, and it is pecan. All right, <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love it. that. You know, I do. You got it. So yeah, look, we, we do a whole show about pecan pie. I'm so glad it's in this episode. <laughs> So I love timestamping this episode because there are very specific moments that just make me cringe. I'm, I'm sure they make a lot of the audience cringe, yeah, but yeah. around the 2042-2043 mark, mm-hmm. Gath places his hand around Janeway's chin. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I, I get that this is his character, but did I'm wondering this, and maybe there's somebody out there who has more information, but did Les Landau actually direct him direct ronald to be so touchy and grabby i i see i i wondered that and i also wondered what was kate thinking during that because i think about janeway as slapping down that hand but i also mm-hmm. wonder if janeway has to think okay I, I have a connection of some sort here is this what his culture does am i taking this the wrong way or the right way is the right way indeed the wrong way so how much of this do i let go in order to get my goal right yeah there's a lot going on there and oof, it yeah turn up that creep factor is what's happening there but i think we're supposed to be put off by it obviously because oh totally. yeah, because Gath, Gath is not to be trusted you know no it yeah. definitely makes you feel uneasy for yeah, sure yeah I do want to point out in engineering the neutrino dispersion pattern. It's one of those things that it is a nice practical effect on set as opposed to one of those uh, overlays that would have done later with blue screen. Uh, it also reveals some of the limitations of the time that this episode was shot, but still is an impressive effort at an on-set practical effect. Um, and I... Um, 
I, I really appreciate in this episode the, the very sincere personal reasons that everybody has to get back home. And it doesn't take a whole lot of dialogue to get it across, but they build believable motivations. I mean, for Seska, sure. for Carrie, and then you can extrapolate that to the rest of the crew. So it's a nice, efficient use of the dialogue there. So is it me or is Carrie giving off a real young Chief O'Brien vibe? Yes, yes. I thought right? that too. Yes. I mean, even his hair is kind of like Columns yeah. you know, when Column was younger. Yeah. You yeah. know, it just, I don't know, you turn around and he could have been, say, his stand-in yeah. if they were doing like a, a distance shot scene. Ooh, maybe he was. Maybe I should look that up. Uh, but yeah, and he's got the wife and kids back home. So right. uh, He does? Yeah, well... Wait, wait. O'Brien did or Carrie did? I'm not sure. I, I may have to look that up to you know, figure okay. out if somebody can get a character profile. Um, right. and, and I do have to ask, wow, the plasma temperature in engineering, 43 million Kelvin. Holy cow. And they're still in the same planetary system with that. And it gets up to 50 million Kelvin. Wow. That is. Can I ask you a question about that specifically? Yeah, sure. Was it as hot in there as it was at the Sands on Saqqara? <laughs> Feeling hot, hot. Uh, Nice, nice. Yeah. And uh, to wrap it all up, and I think we'll get there again the further we discuss, but man, Janeway's did, look, I didn't do anything, and I still feel like I disappointed Janeway. That, that's how palpable her disappointment was, and I, I never want that feeling again. We've reached a turning point in Star Trek history when the pipe cleaner people doesn't automatically refer to Sylvia and Korob. We will get right back to Prime Factors, but first a word from this week's sponsors. So, John, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever walked your dog in public, but this is something that you probably don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to why I'm saying this in a moment. Mm-hmm. So if you walk your dog in public, you walk him with a leash, him or her. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. the safe thing to do. It's the reliable thing to do. You want to keep you and your dog safe. It's mm-hmm. like if you don't use ExpressVPN on the internet, that's like doing the same thing. Oh, for safety. Yes. For safety. Yeah. I because most it. of the time it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You and your dog will be fine. Mm-hmm. But there's that one day where the dog off the leash does something horribly wrong to somebody or himself. Yeah. Oh, we don't want that. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I get it. So uh, it's like every time you connect to an unencrypted network, wherever you are, it could be a cafe, a hotel, an airport, whatever, your online data is not secured like that proverbial dog that is off the leash. Mm -hmm. So any hacker on the same network could gain access to and steal your personal data. Think about all the stuff on your computer, you know, bank records, passwords, everything else. But along comes ExpressVPN to create a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so somebody can't see what you're doing and can't get your data. I mean, it would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It works on all your devices. And imagine this. Imagine pushing that button, ExpressVPN, it's on, you're secure, you're safe. That's how easy it is. It's literally like putting the clasp on your dog's walking collar. That's it. That's all you have to do. Yeah. And it is so easy. As you just mentioned, it's that one app, push that one button, fire it up. 
and you are protected. So that's why I use it. I don't even think about it anymore. I just make sure that ExpressVPN is running. And if I'm somewhere, particularly if I'm somewhere in public, because I, I like to work out of, you know, a coffee shop or a restaurant or wherever, take my iPad with me and just work that way. I absolutely make sure that I am on ExpressVPN because honestly, you turn it on and then you don't think about it again. So get ExpressVPN for yourself, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log to protect you and your information today. Got Slack? Got Max? Get Collide, device security that fixes challenging problems by messaging your users on Slack. Try Collide today. Here's something, John, Mm -hmm. something that we all should know, everyone out there should know, that Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. I love it. I love it. Right inside Slack. And Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable that's not fun at all especially no. when you're working with those Who devices wants that yeah right? nobody I mean, wants that you don't mm-hmm. want to frustrate your employees because yeah. collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems all right so here's what you can do visit collide.com slash mission log today to sign up that's k-o-l-i-d-e.com slash mission log you just put in your email when prompted and then you will get your free collide gift bundle after trial activation. So Collide knows that end users are IT admin's most significant untapped resource. And that is the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including things like instructing developers to set passphrases and unencrypted SSH keys, or finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to secure them securely, or uh, convincing employees to uninstall evil, evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. It's no good for you. It's no good for your employees. It's no good for anybody who's working together. Those are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. So you can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days. No credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Vulcans, Norman, am I right? You're right. <laughs> I, guess I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I, I, it's like how to logic your way into bad ideas and sometimes into some good ideas. But, um, man, there's something really interesting about the way this episode just lays it all out on the table and says the quiet part out loud. We've brought this up on Mission Log before, how adherence to a strict set of guidelines like, say, Vulcan logic or maybe Klingon honor, you know, pinning everything to just a couple of uh, sort of vague ideas can simply be used as a justification for whatever bad or good behavior you want. I mean, Sarek could use logic to justify falling in love with Amanda and marrying her very, very much out of step for his culture. He could also use logic to justify maybe his poor parenting skills with Spock. It, it, it happens. So here we see Tuvok use logic to make a very 
bad ethical decision. And I got to hand it to him. He wanted the captain and the crew to succeed in getting home. He saw an opportunity, and he thought he could protect Janeway's adherence to her ethical code. And yet, he got it so wrong. And I love, you, you probably have the same note that I do. I mean, I love Janeway calling him to the mat here, saying, you can use logic to justify almost anything that's its power and its flaw. Mm-hmm. And how good is Tuvok's response? My logic was not an error, but I was. Man, I I, I just I kind of get chills from that scene. I really do because I feel like it's you know decades of Star Trek and and our look at the importance of Vulcan influence on humanity and our own looking at the real world like like our our own stress on logic because it is an important part of our decision making, but yet the acknowledgement that logic can also get you into incredible trouble. I mean, I love that line. I like bookending it with what Spock said to Valeris in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, that logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Yes, yes, So is this beginning of of Tuvok understanding that there are so many different ways to be able to defend a position that don't necessarily have logic in terms of it always being the end that justifies the means. And and let's think about something very interesting here about Tuvok. First of all, he is completely Vulcan, so we don't have that interesting duality that we had with uh, Spock. Not to say that Tuvok is not interesting. I think he's very interesting, but that was something specific to Spock is the the duality in him. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that Tuvok is not a young man. You know, we just revealed a couple episodes ago that he's been married for 67 years. Is what he said in Ex Post Facto, I believe. So I, he, he is quite a bit up there. He's had a long time to noodle around how important logic is to him and how to use those tools of logic to bend to what his desired outcome is. But, but didn't quite pick up that rule from Star Trek VI or that, that uh, bit of wisdom from Star Trek VI that Spock is laying on Valeris. I mean, I like that... With with Tuvok's explanation of what he did, he's essentially being able to explain away mutiny because mutiny yeah. is making the decision on behalf of the captain without the captain's approval or understanding or knowledge So and influencing the crew to make that decision as well. So imagine this. Imagine that Carrie and Seska and Balana, everything that they're doing right now is all quote-unquote theoretical as they say, quote-unquote, on paper, quote-unquote, yeah, yeah. just in dialogue. Nothing has been done. Nothing has been acted on. Nothing's been executed. So it's kind of like when you're on trial for something, you can be on trial for the act, but you can't be on trial for the intent specifically Mm. per se. So Mm. until Tuvok walks in and Tuvok (laughs) walks in and you're like, oh gosh, we're busted. You know, we're busted by the teacher who knows that he, he knows like exactly where all the smoking rooms are or where people are hanging out, like trying to like sneak drinks during lunch or whatever. And all of a sudden he's the guy that lights up the cigarette in front of you and said, okay, you guys can go. I'll cover cover you. Right. Right. And then what are you left behind with? You're like, was this okay? Are we okay with this? Because Tuvok walks in, Janeway's most trusted friend and officer on this ship, 
the person that she went to the Badlands for. <laughs> yeah, right? Right, right. And all of a sudden, he's okay with explaining away mutiny because of logic. I have to wonder, what does that do to somebody like Bolana, who they right. very, they very cleverly in this episode let you, the audience, see her as wrestling with these ideas. How, you know, at every moment she's getting swayed one direction or the other. Like, I know that this isn't totally right. I know what the captain said to me, but I know what Seska is saying to me and I know what Carrie is feeling. And, I, and so I love that you get a lot of that without her explicitly stating it. Then you have to go, okay, when a guy like Tuvok walks into the room, with all of his gravitas mm-hmm. and his importance. What does this do to her, either swaying her more toward this unethical act or after the act is done, more toward the responsibility that it carries with it? Right. And even more so, not too long ago, she had his complete confidence or his confidence in her both being Maquis at one point in time. True. Yeah. So does she follow his lead saying, oh, I know what this guy's capable of because of, you know, the illusion that he put on of being on her side at one point in time, you know, that has to, that has to be confusing in some stretch. Let me ask you this. Is this in Tuvok's mind, maybe a needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Let's put a pin in that. uh, Okay. 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 Let's put a very specific pin in that. Okay. Okay. We we will put a pin in that. Yeah. The other thing here that, uh, and there are many uh, aspects to pick apart in this episode, but um, something that I think is just front and center and incredibly important to this episode is the idea of staying true to the principle behind the rule. Mm. And that's, that's, it is in direct contrast to Tuvok just saying, okay, here is the thing we want to accomplish. Therefore we will bend whatever logical precept we can to get there. Janeway's stated concern from the outset of the series is that her crew would act as a Starfleet crew no matter what. Cut to Seska. I'll start erasing the sensor logs. <laughs> Bellana saying, no, we're not going to cover this up. And Seska saying, are you crazy? We don't have to take the blame for this. To which Bellana replies, but we're going to. And it has to do with being able to live for yourself. I love that exchange so much. Yeah. And look, I'm not saying that any one of us hosting this show or listening to the show has always ever lived up to that. But it is so nice to see our characters on screen living that moment out because of what just happened and actually just saying explicitly to each other and to the audience then no 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 no. we did the wrong thing therefore now that we've done the wrong thing we actually have to do the right thing which is to stand up and take our punishment or what whatever is going to come from that i i think it it is such a pivotal scene in contrast to maybe some things that we've seen before that take a different path, a different approach. I like that that Carrie's brought into this equation because you have Seska, who is clearly still Maquis and thinks Maquis. Then you have Carrie, who is Federation, but 
because of his family situation at home, he he wants to make this decision based on you know getting back to his family, his loved ones, and then you have Balana kind of like in the middle, yeah. And it's a really wonderful arc where she's come from, say in Caretaker, where she kind of like looks at Chakotay and says, "Who does she think she is?" Answering for all of us, and Chakotay says she's the captain, and I think this is where we are with Balana. You had a really great moment there in, in Caretaker. You had another great moment with Balana winning the captain's trust in Parallax, and then now uh, losing the captain's trust in a way, but understanding that this was the wrong thing to do, and you have to be able to rectify it by owning up and re-earning that captain's trust or her captain's trust with being responsible. The responsibility yeah. is still there. I think that it was just really a pleasure to watch unfold. Mm. The interesting thing in all of this, though, is how are you shaving the ability to weave the prime directive in and out of this equation, <laughs> just skirting the boundaries of what is and what isn't applicable when it comes to being able to fulfill one of the other promises. Are you going to get home or are you going to hold up the principles? Yeah. You know, it's that's that's the way that I think a lot of people live their lives. They, they struggle in these very micromanaging moments of their own personality and say, well, if I just do this, then this will happen. And I'm okay with that. And again, going back to Tuvok, that's just logicking yourself out of the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is one of the few exceptions recently where where you've really just looked at the prime direct, just sort of exposed the prime directive. And I think in a really genius way, allowed us to look at the other side of it. I mean, they, they, they pretty much spell it out for you. And they're saying, okay, it's the prime directive, but guess what? We're on the opposite side of it now. So how do we feel? Which is... It is one of those ways of challenging the audience to say, okay, you're all on the same page with us about what's important. We already know that because you've been watching Star Trek for however long, you know, but as long as we keep saying that these principles are important, how far can we actually bend them when we're the ones who, you know, stand to benefit the most? from bending that principle and when that principle or when that uh, benefit is so huge which is the ultimate goal of this crew just to get home which we can all appreciate and we can all understand how much are we willing to compromise and i think very cleverly they show that some of these individual crew members are willing to compromise more than others but more importantly as a crew as a singular unit as a crew they get slammed back into place to say like no 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 wait the principle is actually more important than any individual desired outcome you know here's something that is a smaller point in the background but i thought it was really interesting when it came to i can see this being applied all the way back to the original series hmm. is there such a thing as pure altruism hmm. think about what gath was promising janeway and voyager please come to our planet all we want to do is offer you pleasure in mm -hmm. any way, shape, or form, whether it's food, whether it's entertainment, whether it's luxury, and we want nothing in return until they do. <laughs> right. Until they do. That brings up a really interesting concept of seeing something like that. Say, it's, they're almost like the Talosians in a way, and their cage is far wider yeah. You know, their ability yeah. to, their leash is far longer, I should say, because yeah. they're allowing humanity 
i.e. Voyager, to be able to provide them with the information that the Talosians say wanted behind the cage in that stimuli that, you know, that stress that Pike was under and Vena was under. But all of a sudden now Gat's like, entertain us however you want, but we're going to provide you the stimuli for that entertainment until we don't. Which, I, you know, for that matter, this could have gone a very different direction. It could have been a first contact moment mm-hmm. where you say, like, oh, okay, look, we, we can come back. If we have this technology, we could send other Federation ships back. You can be part of the Federation. You can have all the outside cultural uh, exchange that you want, all the stories that you want. But, yeah, the the Gath's motives, at least, are something very different. They're much more uh, petty and personal in that respect it's just about whatever he gets out of the moment i think to to address your bigger question though is there anything such uh, as pure altruism i think not necessarily so but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in this case it is being abused but altruistic behaviors that benefit both parties the the giver and the recipient can be okay because ultimately you're you're sort of compounding these actions that then could benefit more people it's okay if the one who is being altruistic is also benefited as long as that continues as a cycle that those who who receive those who are lifted up by that altruism continue it on i don't think it's entirely wrong mm-hmm. Except when it is abused, as it clearly is here. We're not necessarily abused. It's just uh, it's just a, a selfish, sort of a myopic, selfish gain. I mean, the big question for me is, and uh, for you, John, and for the audience out there, when we're watching a concept like this, and the reason why I like bringing it back to, like, say, the 1960s science fiction type of application of this concept, are we conditioned to a point as humanity to be able to watch this and accept it or watch it react to the, you know, say like the, the capitalist motivations that have programmed humanity to react to like, no, this is impossible. There's no way that something like this would exist. And say like in Deep Space Nine's application of this would be, you know, what Quark would say. He would say that everyone has their price and he's proven that time and time again. So it's just an interesting concept, but it's very hard to try and digest from a real world standpoint because of the way the conditioning has been able to program our holographic brains. I mean, our actual human brains. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So these people are good with any story? Any story at all? Finally, I know where I'm sending my Baywatch Nights box set. All right. Well, we have just taken a little bit of time to tell you a story. Yes, it's our, our gift to you, our most precious resource, a story that we lifted out of Voyager's first season and got to discuss its morals, meanings, and messages. And now we've arrived at the end of that story where we're going to give you a wrap-up, tell you what we thought of it, what we learned maybe from today's episode. Norman, I hope that we both learned something beyond what, uh, oh, I don't know, Gaff learned, because I feel like you didn't learn anything. (laughs) I feel like there are other people who did learn a thing or two, like uh, Balana and maybe Seska and hopefully Carrie and, uh, well, definitely Tuvok. So uh, if you would honor me with uh, filling in the rest of the story with how you feel like this episode held up. This may come as a surprise, uh, given the, the nature of my tone throughout the course of kind of like our recap and our observations, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's a yes for me. I really actually did like this episode quite a bit 
for the most part, because I think that it just gives us another glimpse into what's happening beyond kind of like the captain's understanding, beyond the captain's purview uh, with the crew in Voyager. I think that there's like a lot of really good representation with a lot of the main bridge crew characters. Harry gets another great bit here. Uh, Tuvok obviously is fantastic in this episode. Uh, we have some really good, you know, return um, uh, characters like, like uh, Carrie that comes back, you mm-hmm. know, which is really, really nice. But for me though, I'm really interested now in Seska because Martha Hackett really flexes really, really well. Uh, as Seska in this episode, it's it's kind of an interesting um, way that she's maneuvering herself throughout certain alliances that she's making in the crew. She's still very loyal to the Maquis. She's you know loyal to Belana in a way, but she also seems to be very what's the word Lady Macbethian hmm. because she's starting to push certain buttons in certain people, and she knows what buttons to push. Mm-hmm. You know, she knows what motivations rise to the top with people, and I think it's very interesting to watch her act, uh, both Seska and and uh, Martha. But here's my biggest problem with the episode. Okay. It's casting, especially one particular person who ends up being kind of like the lead protagonist alien, which is Ronald hmm. Gutman as Gath. Hmm. Now, he's either the perfect casting decision for Gath, or perhaps the worst casting decision I've ever seen in Star Trek, <laughs> and I still can't make up my mind as to which. Interesting. Okay. He's just on the knife's edge of making your skin crawl in every scene, particularly when he gets very handy and grabby with Janeway. Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe the actor, with no disrespect, again, this is just my interpretation of this character, maybe he just didn't have the ability or the nuance or the direction from, say, Les Landau to give Gath just a little bit more sinister guile, a little bit more subterfuge, a little bit more sensuality or seduction where he needed to be a softer hand, a more velvet glove with Janeway in order to have her on on the line, you know, in that mm. seductive kind of way. He just mm-hmm. seemed to be a little too forceful and forward and not nearly like operating in, say, uh, the way that, I don't know, I, I don't want to say stronger actor because I think he actually is a strong actor, but mm-hmm. just in a way that I say Gath needed to be. And that's just, again, that colors a lot of the negative opinion that I have of this episode, but overall, I really did like it. How about you? I wonder... If your feeling about that is because he's not alien enough, you know, the, the, there's a problem here where you just you just see the actor. They, they look human, yeah. you know, sure. And because of that, he feels just more like a guy who's stayed too long at the bar one night, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's just a little too forward, a little too grabby, a little, you know, so it it doesn't. It, it just rings. It, it's almost a little too uncanny valley, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's something weird about that where they didn't decide to go full on with one decision or another. What mm-hmm. what is this guy going to be? Is he going to be a bad guy or is he going to be a, a little easier to swallow as like kind but kind of seductive? It, it, it never quite lands. I, I maybe that's what it is. Uncanny Valley. That's a great way of putting it because I just again I can't really um, articulate exactly why. I just know that there's something about it that I don't like. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, for me, the problem with this episode, and there are, there are a few, you know, we're, we're back where we were a few weeks ago with that dangling promise that gets pulled out from under our crew at the last minute. I describe that as the Gilligan's Island problem. And, and I know that that will have to be a plot point for any number of episodes. Mostly I'm okay with that, but you can also see it coming. Like, here's the one device that'll fix our problem. Oh, but we can't actually use that because then we don't have a show, (laughs) you know? The other thing is that the attention on this episode feels a little divided in that we're possibly supposed to pick up something about this planet of hedonistic pleasure seekers, but it's not really explored that well. They just sort of are, and there's not much of a statement being made there. And even Janeway's, there's this one scene that I think is very easy to overlook. Janeway's explanation to Gath about what makes humans different, that sense of home and the importance of deepening relationships, that scene just kind of falls flat because it feels like the episode isn't really about that. So we're just trying to squeeze something else in. And then there's the problem of the production design. It is a shopping mall planet and aliens with pipe <laughs> pipe cleaners in their hair. It just, it feels like the budget got cut. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what happened. Um, a few weeks ago, we joked about Neelix's lungs being a parallel to Spock's brain because... Well, you know, specifically you had a stolen organ plot, but you also had the balance of a story with a weird premise that might be hard to swallow, but with a lot of good ideas in there, too. Fast forward to where we are today with Prime Factors, and it is an episode that actually tackles the challenges of the Prime Directive head-on in a way that only Voyager can do, given its very unique premise— We have a moral, ethical dilemma that puts the captain in the role of the chief decision maker and in a position to defend the importance of her and Starfleet's values. And it's all out there in the open for everyone to see. There's no hiding tracks. There's no lying about what happened. There's just a crew who made a series of bad decisions based on reasonable motivations, and it came back to bite them. So seeing Janeway deal with that and the personal disappointment, it elevates the story to a far higher place than we might expect it to at first glance if, if all you're seeing is, you know, the budget cut. So when we ask, does it hold up? This is one of those occasions where the production values fall flat. The guest star is questionable or at least made questionable choices or is directed in a questionable way. But the heart of this story is so absolutely perfectly Star Trek that I cannot help but defend it. It does hold up in the respect that Mission Log's mission is to explore morals, meanings, and messages. And this episode runs headlong into one of the most important of them. So, messages, what did you get? Yeah, this is this is one of those episodes that I think that had another uh, another similar problem, say, with, like, say, Emanations or other episodes we've mentioned before where they almost have too many really good ideas and they don't really mm. figure out, like, which one is going to be the one that's going to kind of be the alpha idea. But when you really boil this down, 
this episode really kind of crystallizes at the very end where you're dealing with priorities versus principles. You know, this is mm-hmm. something that I think is very Star Trek. And uh, remember what I said early on in, in our observations, you know, to put a pin in what you said, the needs mm-hmm. of the many needs versus the, many. the needs of the few? Yeah. This is pretty amazing stuff, folks, because, you know, John and I, again, rarely see our notes when we create these for the podcast. And my notes specifically for morals, meanings, and messages reference this very axiom. So what we have here, in my opinion, what is uh, on display and in, in conflict, you have the needs of the many and the needs of the few equaling the Voyager crew and specifically Bellana, Seska, and Carrie on one side of the equation. You have mm. versus the needs of the one, which is Janeway, on the other side of the equation. Now, Seska says to Bellana that the main responsibility for everyone on the ship is to try and find a way home. Captain Janeway made that clear from the beginning. That's our primary mission. No mm. argument there. That, Like you said, John, this is out in the open. This is something that Captain Janeway believes. Yep. But then Janeway says to Tuvok, principles principles that's what it comes down to do i compromise my almighty principles they're not her almighty principles they're starfleet's almighty principles in this point but how do i not compromise them if it involves a chance to get the crew more than halfway home how do i tell them my principles are so important that i would deny them that opportunity now here's the interesting thing here's the wrinkle in this whole equation okay tuvok gives her the out with logic (laughs) Mm-hmm. He literally gives her the out because he said that you aren't dealing with your problem. You're dealing with someone who's already compromised his own set of laws. Mm-hmm. That's not your fault. That's mm-hmm. his fault. So you're yeah. operating under doing the right thing for the crew under the auspices of this other person's compromise. Yeah. Does that still hold up to compromising her principles? I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it because this is when her principles do outweigh her priorities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. for me, I don't know about for you, John, but for me, I think I would have sided with Bellana if I was there in engineering. Were they going against the captain's orders? Yes. Yeah. But they were also acting under the pretense that the captain promised to get them home and they had the ability to do so in their hand. Yeah. So does following the letter of the law, does that outweigh the instinct to do what's right? Again, it's principles versus priorities. I don't have, an, I don't have the answer. I know the moral meaning and message in this episode. Yeah, I yeah, don't necessarily yeah. agree or disagree with either choice in this matter, which makes it so unbelievably Star Trek. Well, I, I think that's so, so good about what you're pointing out is that you, like you just said, you can fully understand. You can even say like, yeah, I would side with Bellana. Here, you're handed this gift. You have this thing that somebody else broke their principles to get you. Now, all you have to do is turn it on. That person breaking their principles, that's not you. That's not your fault. All you have to do is turn it on to get you there. But I think what's more important is when we get to the end that Bolana is the one who stands up. Tuvok is the one who stands up. I would like to see that same uh, encounter with uh, uh, Carrie and Seska when they have to uh, <laughs> face Janeway, you know. Right. Uh, but that, is, that would be a lot of scenes, you know, back to back. You can fully understand and align with that motivation you can also fully understand and align with what has to happen afterward. So 
I, yeah, there's not a singular right answer there other than to say, okay, well, when things do go wrong, we then have to live up to the principle of being who we say we are and understanding what was and what is at stake here. One last thing, John, before you Mm -hmm. get into your morals, meanings, and messages, just think about it this way. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the choice that Kirk could not make was made by Spock, his best friend and Vulcan. Yeah. The choice in this episode that Janeway couldn't make was done by her best friend and Vulcan. Yeah. Pretty interesting parallel. That's nice. That's nice. Well, look, there's one topic that we really didn't touch on, and I think it's another fascinating part of the episode, is um, Yudana says to, uh, to Harry Kim, noble stories are the ones that can most affect our lives. And, um, you know, to Harry, he describes it as saying, you know, that stories are more than entertainment. They're sort of a measuring rod of values and beliefs. And this episode isn't really about that. But I like that line, both of those lines so much, because it's honestly why we do Mission Log. And it's why we're so interested in the stories that Star Trek has to tell. We could be talking about any other number of shows on a podcast, but we're talking about a show that specifically waves to the audience and says, here's a story that has value. Here's a story that actually, you know, noble might not always be the right word, but but here's a story that can actually impact lives and outlooks and make the audience think. That was what Gene Roddenberry always wanted. Hey, we're going to tell you something that can be fun and, you know, tell you a good yarn, a good action adventure story. But at the end of the day, it can also make you think. So I love that moment of the the emphasis of the importance of the story itself. Because that's what we're doing here. That's why this podcast exists. Now, as to the, the principle, as to the moral meaning message of the episode, um, I I think, you know, it comes down to something that should be pretty obvious, and that is that your code is only worthy if you live by it when nobody else is looking. You know, Janeway, the Voyager crew, they don't have to answer to anybody. There is no Starfleet. There is no Federation out there breathing down their necks looking at everything that they do. Voyager's crew had every opportunity here to either strong arm their way into getting what they wanted or there were plenty of opportunities to bend a rule or to overlook an inconvenient barrier and i don't know why this is still so hard for some people to grasp but if the principles that you say you value only apply when it's easy then they really aren't your values at all they're built on a foundation of sand and this is the perfect Star Trek way of reminding us that sometimes, maybe most of the time, that the right thing to do is going to be the hardest thing to do. We'll get it wrong and we'll make mistakes, but we have to rely on the people around us to keep ourselves in check, to live honestly, and to make every effort to live our principles, not just give them lip service. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord, 
Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, State of Flux. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Dear Planet of the Pleasure People, Buck Rogers called and it wants you back. Say hi to Tweaky for me. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.